Hello everyone, so when I was in the organized crime world and voluntarily speaking as a five-year-old child of a boy, sex workers were the most victimized by exchange rape, rape occurring as the result of bargaining. Sex workers were the most victimized by punitive rape, rape used to punish or discipline. Sex workers were the most victimized by theft rape, rape that happens when a woman or man or a non-binary person is abducted, in most cases to be used as a slave or a prostitute. Sex workers were the most victimized by ceremonial rape, rape involving defloration rituals. Sex workers were the most victimized by status rape, rape resulting from differences in hierarchy or social class. Sex workers were the most slapped, kicked, punched. Sex workers were the most threatened with physical violence. Sex workers were the most victims of robbery. Sex workers were the most victims of attempted robbery. Sex workers were the most most beaten. Sex workers were the most threatened with a weapon. Sex workers were the most held against will. Uh, sex workers were the most victims of attempted rape, vaginal, oral, and anal. Sex workers were the most victimized by strangulation. Sex workers were the most kidnapped. Sex workers were the most forced to give a client oral sex, vaginal sex, and anal sex. Sex workers were the most raped vaginally, orally, and anally. Uh, Sex workers are the most victimized by attempted kidnap. Um, Sex workers were the most slashed and stabbed. Um, Sex workers had the most reports of at least It's hard for me to say. Let me say it again. Sex workers had the most reports when it came to client client violence to the police. Um, Sex workers were the most spat upon, the most plucked, the most pinched. The most head bashings.
the most impregnated unintentionally the most impregnated intentionally in certain cases and the sex workers they had the most violent clients violent pimps and violent police officers and violent law enforcement federally uh, nationally state county and city meaning locally too sex workers were the most targeted by serial killers and there was unfortunate success in that regard um Sex workers were the most victims of WWE, WWF moves by um, those who are heartless. And those who are heartless did the most martial arts moves as well as kickboxing moves on the sex workers. Um... Sex workers had the highest likelihoods of injury, death, psychological harm, deprivation, um, maldevelopment, and assaults. They suffered the most psychological trauma, anxiety, chronic depression, post-traumatic stress, um... They were the most victimized by verbal abuse, repeated shouting, fear through intimidating words and gestures, controlling behavior, the destruction of possessions, made to feel bad about oneself, being called derogatory names, insulted, cursed out, being humiliated or belittled in front of other people, being threatened with loss of custody of one's children, being confined or isolated from family or friends, being threatened with harm to oneself or someone one cares about, and the denial of their basic needs, forced drug, alcohol consumption, being arrested for a caring condoms, to name a few. This is what I witnessed. These things, all these things happen to sex workers the most. Um, so how did I respond to what happened to those sex workers? Well, 
I badly beat up the guys who did that. All those things to them. I drew a lot of blood. Broke a lot of bones. Busted a lot of lips. Did a lot of black eyes. Fractured noses. Rearranged their faces. They were able to... Some end up going to prison. Um, For decades upon decades. And the rest got killed shortly after that. Um, Because they had a negative reputation for simply being themselves. And when you have a reputation for being highly dislikable and highly unlovable, because they were bullies, the crime world caught up to them via kill shots from guns. Um... So now I'm going to talk about um, sex workers were the most victimized by sexual sadists, vindictive rapists, Power rapists, anger rapists, sadistic rapists, sexual gratification rapists. Sex workers were the most victimized by anger excitation sexual predators this predator is the most sadistic they are gratified by a victim's suffering it is all about control physical aggression and torture this offender has sexually aggressive fantasies and their goal is to inflict physical and psychological pain on their victims with a goal of eventually killing their victims This offender will use a con approach. Basically, they'll pretend to be kind-hearted. But once they corner you, their dictator spirit presents itself and the torment commences as as an inevitable outcome. Sex workers were the most victimized by anger, retaliatory sexual predators. The anger, retaliatory rapist has one primary goal, torture the victim. Their rage is often focused towards one person and they punish their victims who vicariously fill that role. 
they may argue they are doing something in the name of religion or politics, but it's generally a crusade to hurt women who have hurt him. This offender believes self-importance is the paramount satisfier. The offender... This offender is a blitz-style attack and brutally and violently urged. This offender will use a blitz-style attack and brutally and violently injure the victim using sex as the weapon. They are verbally selfish and non-negotiable. They blame the victim for their unfortunate life and their behavior. They are extremely angry, displacing that anger on the victim. They force the victim to perform humiliating acts on them. They rip clothing and use excessive brutality. Victims of this type of offender usually die. The crime itself usually disorganized once the victim is under the control of the offender. The attack is usually uh, short in duration and emotionally charged. The offender experiences satisfaction once the anger is discharged. Resist this offender will enrage will enrage them. They may not be planning on killing the victim, but the beatings they inflict on the victims could be fatal. And they hate erratic behavior, supposedly, on their um, when it comes to their victims. The sex workers were the most victimized by power assertive sexual predators. Each level of rape is more aggressive. This offender, while insecure, will come across as though he has no self-doubt. His motivation is to possess, not harm his victim. Sadly, harm often occurs. This offender generally feels inadequate with women and has an overactive ego. The assault somehow restores his quote-unquote self-confidence is a quote-unquote confirmation of his manhood. He rapes because he feels he is entitled. It's all about express virility and personal dominance. This method of attack from this offender is a con and blitz-style assault. While they rely primarily upon verbal threats, control, mastery, humiliation are a common theme. They may use a weapon, but usually it is only displayed to ensure cooperation. They are generally socially competent, but desire little victim interaction. They would best be described as a quote-unquote quote, quote, macho man, and they are quick to use obscene language. They are sexually explicit and demanding. Their goal is power and control and may assault the victim multiple times. They're likely to be physically punishing during the assault may resort to bondage. Their goal is to humiliate the victim, and they are incredibly selfish. This offender is physically aggressive and will use force to gain compliance, especially if there is resistance. Victim death is not a goal of this offender, but can occur due to the brutality employed. They tend to be disorganized and they display little control over their impulses. In my case, it 
It was no control. Um, the victim is usually selected in advance, but they are often opportunistic. The victim will be held captive during the assault, and they desire to leave the victim physically and emotionally traumatized. Um, the sex workers growing up um, were the most victimized by power, reassurance, sexual predators. Uh, the characteristics of the power reassurance rapists. This predator is believed to be the most prevalent of serial rapists. Some experts suggest they're responsible for 80% of all sexual assaults. Some victims describe this offender as almost apologetic and gentlemanly. They are opportunistic rapists whose motivation is to, is to someone act out fantasies that they are having legitimate relationships. They are generally insecure and are surrounded by a great deal of self-doubt. The assault is a fulfillment of their fantasy and attempt to restore their quote-unquote self-confidence, meaning manhood. Um, this type of offender um, lacks confidence. They will quietly approach the victim undetected. The offender may have started as a peeping Tom may be surveilling the victim shortly before the assault. To show that they are alone and he could be successful in an assault, it will be a blitz-style attack, obtaining control, using verbal threats, physical harm. Defender may suggest they have a weapon, but rarely display one. The power assurance rapist is often socially awkward and will spend time reassuring the victim that they will be safe as long as they comply. They are complimentary and apologetic. They attempt to get the victim to participate in the assault, further fueling the offender's fantasy that the assault is actually a legitimate relationship. This offender will not cause unnecessary harm. I mean, they always do, though. I, I disagree with that. They always cause unnecessary harm. They are unorganized, but they select the victim in advance. They may try to recontact the victim after the attack and keep some type of record of the assault. Again, fantasize that the relationship is legitimate. Um... In my past, usually the assaults weren't recorded because they were afraid of law enforcement. And this offender will most likely terminate the assault if the victim resists, scream, cry, plead, or fight. Um, most offenders do not want to deal with an overly resistant victim, rather they have a weapon. Um, Statistically, this offender has an average education of the 10th grade. They're most often single, living with one of both parents. They have few friends and no partner. They're working a meaningful job, but maintain steady work. They're described as usually unathletic and socially awkward. Most have an interest in pornography. So, um, that's what happened to, um, To the uh, sex workers, um, it says, what describes this 
offender, the anger retaliatory one, statistically, this offender will have completed the ninth grade. They will almost always inflict physical harm on the victim before sexual harm. They are often a drug and and or alcohol abuse, and they're described as socially competent, likely to be married. They do not assault their spouse or companion, even though a lot of the ones I knew did. They are likely to be an adulterer, and that was true. They were always cheating, and they come from an unhealthy home with more than one half of those offenders. These offenders also being childhood victims of abuse by parents. 80% of them will come from a divorce home, may spend time in foster care. That's what I was exposed to. Um, This type of offender, the anger excitation one, will use physical force once he has convinced them to drop their guard by his con approach. They will have a sophisticated quote-unquote rape kit that includes items for binding the victims, abusing them, etc. This offender will own an extensive pornography collection, typically involving bondage. They're excited by a victim expressing emotional and physical pain. Much of the assault is ritualized and repetitive in nature, revealing more about the offender's fantasies. They often record the assault and keep souvenirs. Again, these assaults are very physical, include tying, gagging, blindfolding, etc. The assaults are brutal and last for extended periods of time. There may be mutilations and injuries increase with anger. What's described this offender? Neighbors will describe this predator as the nicest guy, always willing to help. They often lead a secret life or are married in a middle-class family setting. They're generally well-educated with at least some college education. They commonly have drug and alcohol around and often have antisocial personality traits. Some may describe them as aggressive in everyday life, even obsessive-compulsive. More than half of these offenders were raised in single-parent homes and many were physically abused. Uh, research suggests that they may have been raised in a sexually deviant home. This predator is considered to be among the most sophisticated. Chances of injury and death increase with the offender's increased anger. Murder is generally the end result and the victim must do whatever they can to escape, do not give in. And they hate the concept of escaping the resistance. That's um, the victim risk reduction. Aggravated behaviors. The offender intends on killing the victim almost all cases. They're organized and brutal. The victim is generally opportunistic victims, such as a hitchhiker. Victims are described as vulnerable, seducible, non-aggressive, or people with low self-esteem. This offender will most likely hide the victim's body when disposed. So, um, 
When it came to the power set of rapists, the begging and crying is ineffectual with this offender if you're going to resist screaming and fight violently, realizing that the offender will likely become more angry fighting, showing aggressive, fighting and showing aggressiveness. This offender's manhood is in question, but trying to escape might be worth it as the punishment if caught. It's generally not lethal. The offender's goal is humiliation, not torture, even though everything that the offender does is torture. What they say, do, think, and feel. Um, so this is what um, happened growing up um, to each of to the sex workers. They are victimized by the sexual predator, sexual perpetrators the most. I'm explaining to you the sexual predator typologies. Um, and um, in my childhood, I was victimized by power reassurance rapists power assertive rapist, anger retaliatory rapist, anger excitation rapist. Um, I was fortunate to um, never be killed by them. How did I escape being killed by them? Well, most people in the criminal streets liked me, so all of them these particular rapists, all of them were killed. Um, deadly weapons, bare hands, and their feet. Um, that happened about between the first to second month of me being organized crime. By the third form of me organized crime, I um I wasn't raped as much. The more I ascended into organized crime, the less I was raped. So the human trafficking of me happened, but not as much as me being raped frequently like I was um, in the first months of me organized crime, it, the rapes and sex assaults went down over time because the rapists kept getting killed and the rest of the rapists kept going to prison. And sex crime rings and the child sex rings kept being the downfall of these sex criminals. And when they would have forced adult sex rings, that was another form of their uh, downfall because they kept being killed for that and the rest kept going to prison for that too. So the rapes went down each passing month in the crime world because they kept being, you know, they died of violence murder and robberies and the violence murder robberies that the sexual predators sexual perpetrators kept 
increasing like there is no tomorrow. They, I kid you not, they died of the violence robbery, the violence robberies and murders. They did. Um, so that's what happened. Um, And sex workers were the most victimized by acquaintance rape, campus rape, corrective rape, sexual assault of LGBTQ plus victims, drug facilitated sexual assault slash rape, date rape, gang rape, genocidal rape, grave rape, live streaming rape, marital rape, prison rape, rape, chance, serial rape, uh, statutory rape, unacknowledged, unacknowledged rape, rape by deception, the effects aftermaths of rape, pregnancy from rape, rape trauma syndrome, the cause of sexual violence, post-assault, mistreatment, sexual assault victims, the Weinstein effect, uh, rape culture, stalking, sexual harassment, molestation, rape, um, mastery, control, dominance, strength, intimidation, authority, capability, rape myths, um, rape threats, rape fantasies, rape pornography, rape of males, rape of females, rape of the non-binary persons, date rape, drugs, um, rape shield laws, Mary rapist laws, um, sexual assault yeah um now how did the streets respond to all these things happening to sex workers well the streets like sex workers so the majority usually Uh, I would say, on a scale of 1 to 10, I would say 9.9 times out of 10, usually they all got killed. Because these were the type of sexual predators, sexual perpetrators that were trying to rape anyone that crossed their path. So, 9 times out of 10 they got killed every now and then one would be sent to prison for decades upon decades but most of them got killed um very few went to prison alive um so that's what happened with them um I remember when it came to um, the sex workers, sex workers were the most victimized by sexual conquests, sexual defeats, sexual beatings, sexual conquerings, 
sexual vanquishment, sexual vanquishing, sexual trouncing, sexual annihilation, sexual overpowering, sexual overthrows, sexual subduing, sexual subjugation, sexual rout, sexual masteries, sexual crushing, sexual victories over, sexual triumphs over, sexual hammering, sexual clobbering, sexual thrashing, sexual drubbing, sexual caning, sexual murder, sexual massacre, sexual seizure, sexual seizing, sexual takeover, sexual acquisition, sexual gain, sexual appropriation, sexual subjection, sexual capture, sexual occupations, in terms of ensnaring them and entrapping them, sexual invasion, sexual annexation, sexual overrunnings, um, Many dudes saw sex workers as sexual conquest the most, is what I'm saying. So the subjugation and assumption of control of sex workers by male misogynists um, and their nauseating concept of male sexual entitlement as their victory because in their minds we got these sex workers to surrender to us it's it makes me want to throw up so male sexual entitlement hurt sex workers the most because they were the most victimized by it and because of that um men when it came to sex workers Um, the sex workers were the most victimized by sex contests, sex competitions, sex matches, sex tournaments, sex games, sex meets, sex events, sex trials, sex bouts, sex heat, sex fixtures, sex ties, sex races, because they treated, um, sex as a contest with each other in the form of male supremacy, male superiority, so they would engage in sex competitions to attain sex workers the most as their positions of power the most. They would compete with each other for sex workers the most. They would contend with each other for sex workers the most. They would vie for sex workers with each other the most. They would challenge each other for sex workers the most. They would fight over sex workers the most with each other and they would fight for themselves amongst each other battling each other for sex workers the most male misogynistic sexual entitlement Basically, they would have these sex events with each other in which they would compete for supremacy in a sport of obtaining sex workers the most, activities when it came to sex workers the most, in particular qualities when it came to sex workers the most. And they had the have sex with as many partners as one possibly can with sex workers the most. And whatever happened to these guys, 
murdered and went to prison because they offended crime bosses by acting like they're all that in a bag of chips in terms of materialism, attire, and bragging about their control of the streets. Moore got murdered, the rest went to prison. That tended to be a common theme in my life. Murder was usually the go-to for their anger mismanagement. And the rest went to prison because some people in the streets called the police quickly. That's usually how the rest would go to prison when it came to any crime. talking about religion. God apparently failed to inspire Bible translators. Most people know that thousands of Bible copying errors were made in the early centuries of Christianity, but it's less well known that even if we had the original manuscripts, there still would be a formidable problem translating them accurately into modern languages. Following is taken from translationjournal.net. Ooh. Yeah, when I read the Bible, often I get confused. And often the ambiguity, the vagueness, the unclearness, the... Um... The sugarcoating I see in the Bible is very nerve-wracking to me. The Bible, in certain cases, to beat around the bush. Then it says, It is well known that the Bible is the most translated book in the world. In 1994, the United States decided recorded that of the estimated 3,000 languages in the world, 341 had complete Bibles, 822 some parts of the Bibles and that Bible translation was in progress in addition to 1,000 languages. Institute Paravoda Bibli, 1996, page 227. The lack of ability to speak the languages in which the Bible was originally written and continual changes in the languages we speak have created the need to translate the Bible. Therefore, throughout the years, There have been many who have translated or tried to translate the Bible. However, translating the Bible is not an easy task since there are many problems inherent in Bible translation. If we think how hard it is to translate modern languages into English, then how much more difficult it must be to translate 3,000-year-old Hebrew and 2,000-year-old Greek. The purpose of this paper is to consider some of the basic problems of Bible translation that have been encountered in the past will certainly be encountered in the future. I mean, every time 
I've read the Bible. I'm thinking to myself, the Bible at times can be um, incoherent. Um, The Bible at times can be muddled. I mean, let me just say it outright. Some a lot of a lot a lot of passages in the Bible are incoherent, unclear, confused, muddled, unintelligible, incomprehensible, disjointed, disconnected, unconnected, disordered, mixed up, garbled, jumbled, scrambled, rambling, wandering, discursive, disorganized, uncoordinated, illogical, inarticulate, mumbled, muttered, stuttered, stammered, slurred, and Intuate, intuate, hard to follow, delirious, raving, babbling, hysterical, irrational, unable to speak intelligently, of spoken and written language expressed in an incomprehensible or confusing way. Very unclear. Yes. That's what I witnessed in the Bible. Then it says... One basic problem inherent in Bible translations is that we do not have the original manuscript of the Bible, but copies of copies of copies. And this causes many problems because translators do not know which of all these copies is correct and which is not, since none of them are identical. The differences are not very significant in the Old Testament, but they are in the New Testament. According to research, about 3% of the Bible's text varies across all the manuscripts nowadays. We have about 1,500 complete or partial manuscripts of the New Testament. Wow. And, um, it just makes me recognize, and I'm going to say this publicly, there are parts of the box There are parts of the Bible that are incorrect, not in accordance with fact, wrong, mistaken, erroneous, inaccurate, inexact, imprecise, invalid, untrue, false, fallacious, off-target, misleading, unsound, unfounded, faulty, flawed, abroad, in error, not accurate, not exact, wide off the mark, without foundation, not in accordance with particular standards or rules regarding... Grammar, punctuation, spelling, and editing um, literary masterpieces. There are parts of the Bible that are inappropriate, unsuitable, inapt, and and an opposite. And in opposite. Um, That there are aspects of the Bible that are unreasonable, unreasoned, groundless, unjustifiable, unjustified, spurious, unscientific, lacking sense, no clear, sound reasoning, and... in opposition to mathematics, in opposition to history, 
in opposition to geography, in opposition to nature. in opposition to research and in opposition to data and statistics and ratios. Then it says, there are two main approaches to solving this problem. The more common one is called the eclectic approach. Scholars put together a text from all the available manuscripts using various rules to sort out differences. For example, what do the oldest manuscripts say? What do the majority say? What do the best say? Which reading is more likely? But this approach is not accepted by many people for it gives too much scope to human judgment. Another approach that has been used in the past is that of Evan Panin. In 1890, Evan Panin, after his conversion from atheism, discovered that the entire Bible is full of hidden numerical patterns largely based on number seven. This discovery had two major implications. Um, first, it gave striking proof of the inspiration of the scripture. Every sentence, every word, and even every letter had the, uh, um, in quotations, divine seal upon it. The patterns could um, never have been placed there by human wit. Um, according to his perspective. Second, it gave him a method of deciding in every instance which was the correct text in this numerical theory even enabled Panin to resolve ambiguities of punctuation, I bid. However, even Panin's work has been almost entirely ignored by academics. See, that's what I mean about when, like, I gotta really be honest. Um, The bot, you know, the Bible is filled with discriminatory traditions, Bible writers, discriminatory, uh, discriminatory policies, Bible writers, discriminatory ideas, Bible writers, discriminatory practices, Bible writers, discriminatory laws, Bible writers. Discriminatory institutions, Bible writers, discriminatory systems, Bible writers, discriminatory entities, Bible writers. So the Bible is filled with discriminatory traditions, discriminatory policies, discriminatory ideas, discriminatory practices, discriminatory laws, discriminatory institutions, it's discriminatory systems, and discriminatory entities. Christianizing discrimination is what the Bible writers did. And it says, as most people know, the Bible in its original untranslated form is a collection of ancient writings in the New Testament in Greek, though parts may have been previously written in Hebrew or Aramaic and then translated into Greek. The Old Testament in Hebrew and Aramaic, some passages of the Old Testament, mostly in Daniel, spanning many cultures in more than a thousand years. The 66 books into which the Bible is divided represent a greater variety of literary style, example, historical narrative, prophecy, poetry, instructions, and exhortation, etc., than any other piece of literature in the history of mankind. Snell, Hornby, 
Hornbeat, 1998, page 225. This variety of text types makes Bible translation a hard task for the translator, especially when translating into languages which do not have a long literary tradition. Another problem that many translators face in Bible translations is that the Bible is addressed to a huge variety of people. Example, theologians, adults, children, believers, non-believers, etc. And as Snell Hornby states, the Bible is written for different use, example, for both readers and listeners, eBay 275. Thus, we could say that it's very difficult for a translator to translate the Bible since they must reproduce an equivalent text in the target language, which could be used for the same purposes as that of the source language. Mm. I just got to say this because it's real. The Bible is filled with institutional discrimination Structural discrimination, ageism, caste systems, class discrimination, also known as classism, dialect discrimination, ableism, genetic discrimination, discrimination based on hair texture, height discrimination, linguistic discrimination, lookism, sanism, um, racism, Discrimination based on skin color, scientific racism, also known as sometimes termed biological racism, rankism, uh, sexism, sexual orientation discrimination, gender identity discrimination, genderlessness discrimination, uh, speciesism, uh, sizeism, and viewpoint discrimination. And I say that because the you, there are institutional discrimination Bible writers structural discrimination Bible writers, ageism Bible writers, caste system Bible writers, classism Bible writers, dialect discrimination Bible writers, ableist Bible writers, genetic discrimination Bible writers, discrimination based on hair texture Bible writers, height discrimination Bible writers, linguistic discrimination Bible writers, lookism Bible writers, sanism Bible writers, racist Bible writers, uh, Discrimination based on skin color, Bible writers. Scientific racist, Bible writers. Rankism, Bible writers. Sexist, Bible writers. Sexual orientation discrimination, Bible writers. Gender identity discrimination, Bible writers. Gender listeners discrimination, Bible writers. Speciesism, Bible writers. Sizeism, Bible writers. And viewpoint discrimination, Bible writers. Let's keep going. Eugene Nilda points out that since no two languages are identical, there could be no absolute correspondence between languages. Hence, there could be no fully exact translations. The total impact of a translation may be reasonably close to the original, but there could be no identity in detail, cited in Venutar 2127. It is accepted that exact translation is impossible since meanings of words and grammatical structures in any two languages do not generally correspond. We can illustrate that with the Greek word um, aoyos, aos, 
No one English word is exactly equivalent to it. It can mean a word, a thought, a saying, a discourse, a narrative, a matter, and many other things. The translator must choose the best equivalent in each situation. To illustrate grammatical problems, we can consider tenses. English has two present tenses, whereas most other languages only have one. E. E. Wait a minute. E-A-O? So is it E-O, like, capital I-W in Greek, or itch, east in German, can mean I eat or I am eating. Pronouns are also full of problems. Hebrew has four words for you, distinguishing between masculine and feminine and singular and plural. English has only the one. In the Song of Solomon, the Hebrew is always clear from the gender whether the bride or bridegroom is speaking, but some English versions lose the distinction. Um, yeah, that's why I'm glad we're having this discussion of these specific Bible, biblical passages in terms of the fact that the Bible is misogynistic. You had male misogynists writing the Bible. None of the Bible writers are women. None of the Bible writers are girls. None of the Bible... I mean... They tried to keep LGBTQ plus people from being Bible writers. Hmm, hmm, hmm. <laughs> And then, um, basically, the Bible is filled with a aerophobia, discrimination against asexual people, adultism, adult supremacy, um, persecution of people with albinism, and discrimination against autistic people. Discrimination against homeless people. Discrimination against drug addicts. Anti-intellectualism. Anti-intersex. Anti-left-handedness. Anti-masonry. Anti-Semitism. Aporophobia. Autism. Biphobia. Clanism. Cronyism. Elitism. Ethobiphobia. Fatphobia. Social stigma. Obesity. Discrimination against gay men, gay phobia, femphobia, gerontophobia, heterosexism, you know, discrimination against people with HIV slash AIDS, homophobia, leprosy, stigmas, lesbophobia, misandry, misogyny, nepotism, pedophobia, a professional foreigner stereotype, pregnancy discrimination, reverse discrimination, sectarianism, supremacism, Black supremacism, white supremacism, transphobia, discrimination against non-binary people, transmisogyny, vegaphobia, and xenophobia. Um, because um, There were apophobia Bible writers, asophobia Bible writers, adultism and adult supremacy Bible writers, anti-albinism Bible writers, anti-autism Bible writers, 
anti-homelessness Bible writers, anti-drug addicts Bible writers, anti-intellectualism Bible writers, anti-intersex Bible writers, anti-left-handedness Bible writers, anti-masonry Bible writers, anti-Semitism Bible writers, agoraphobia Bible writers, autism Bible writers, biphobia Bible writers, clientism Bible writers, cronyism Bible writers, elitism Bible writers, ephibophobia Bible writers, fatphobia Bible writers, gayphobia Bible writers, Femphobia Bible writers, gerontophobia Bible writers, heterosexism Bible writers, HIV slash AIDS stigma Bible writers, homophobia Bible writers, leprosy stigma Bible writers, lesbophobia Bible writers, misandry Bible writers, misogyny Bible writers, nepotism Bible writers, pedophobia Bible writers, depression, foreigner stereotype Bible writers, pregnancy discrimination Bible writers, reverse discrimination Bible writers, sectarianism Bible writers, supremacism Bible writers, he had some of the Bible writers were white supremacists, some of the Bible writers were black supremacists, transphobia Bible writers, discrimination is not binary, people Bible writers, transmisogyny Bible writers, vegophobia Bible writers, xenophobia Bible writers. And then it says, um, so from the above examples, we can see that it is totally impossible to take a document in one language and make an exact word for word equivalent of it in another. Frequently, the translator must grasp the meaning of the original as best they can and then seek to reproduce that meaning in the target language. This, however, can be done if the Bible translator respects the features of the receptor language and exploits the potential and exploits the potentialities of the language to the greatest possible extent. Nita in Tabernacle 74, page 4. And as Nita says, unfortunately, in some instances, translators have actually tried to remake a language, but this was unsuccessful, I bid for. For example, one missionary in Latin America insisted on trying to introduce the passive voice of the verb into a language which had no such form. Of course, this was not successful. One should simply accept the fact that there are many languages which do not have a passive voice and find a way to report actions in the active voice. Another problem here in Bible translation is comprehension of the intended meaning. Here, in fact, there are at least three problems. First, there is the problem of understanding the ancient languages in which the Bible was written, including humor styles, I add. No one can speak. No one who spoke those languages is around to tell us what they mean. And let me repeat. First, there's the problem of understanding the ancient languages in which the Bible is written, including the humor styles. And I repeat that again because it shows me that the Bible needed Grammarly, Microsoft Editor, the Bible needed English teachers. The Bible needed the five big five publishing houses. In other words, the Bible needed Penguin Random House, Hanchet. Liver, Harper Collins, Macmillan Publishers. Hoyton Mifflin Harcourt. 
I'll also add that the Bible writers needed Scholastic, um, Wiley, John Wiley and Sons, Oxford University Press, Disney Publishing Worldwide, Workman Publishing Company, Sterling Publishing, Abrams Publishing. <laughs> they needed their imp- the Bible writers needed their imprints too. Then it says, and I'm going to say this for the last time, no one who spoke those languages is around to tell us what they mean. So you would think that the Bible writers would understand how important it is to be um, direct and straightforward, but they tend, the Bible is filled with um, verbal gymnastics, literary gymnastics, um, and mental gymnastics. The Bible writers are filled with um, verbal acrobatics, literary acrobatics, and mental acrobatics. The Bible is filled with verbal Olympics, mental Olympics, literary Olympics. Um, the Bible is filled with circular reasoning, circular conversations, talking in circles, and word salad, and verbal diarrhea. And let me keep going. We all know that languages continually change over time. New words are always being added and others take on different or added meanings. For example, only recently have we begun using the word internet as part of everyday speech. And when we hear the word cool in a conversation today, it is not always referring to the weather. Therefore, it is obvious that words do not have only one meaning and many are not used in the same way that they were used in the past. It is well known that even modern Greeks and Israelis cannot understand the Bible from its, from its original manuscripts. They need a translation. However, to understand the Bible, words must be studied in all the places where they occur in available writings and compared with similar words in related languages. Then we might be able to understand or guess their meaning. Nevertheless, we should bear in mind that of the Bible, it, nevertheless, we should bear in mind that of the Bible expected to be understood, the Bible is not a collection of of cabalistic writing or of Delphic oracles. As Nita says, the writers of the Bible were addressing themselves to concrete historical situations or were speaking to living people confronted with pressing issues. EBIT, page 7. Thus, we should assume that the writers of the Bible expect to be understood and also that they intended one meaning and not several unless an intention ambiguities is linguistically marked. I think there was some intentional ambiguity on their part. I mean, the ambiguity is it overly massive, excessively rampant in scriptures. And it also, I have to say this, that from what I've read in the scriptures the fact that it's the Bible writers put their hate group and hate speech 
in the Bible. The fact that the Bible writers put their political repression in the Bible. The fact that the Bible writers put trans bashing in the Bible. The fact that the Bible writers put rape culture in the Bible. The fact that the Bible writers put organized crime in the Bible. The fact that the Bible writers endorse genocide in the Bible. The fact that the Bible writers endorse genital modification and mutilation in the Bible. The fact that the Bible writers endorse forced conversions in the Bible. And lastly, the fact that the Bible writers endorsed wife selling in the Bible. Ugh. The fact that it's easy to go about sex selective abortion and capital punishment for those who are not heterosexual cisgender. Wow. And the fact that you can, in, the Bible writers endorse state religions and social exclusion in the Bible. Ooh. The fact that the Bible writers endorsed discrimination against atheists and discrimination against those who are of faith but don't call themselves Christians. And the fact that the Bible has endorsed discrimination, education, employment discrimination, economic discrimination, and these dog whistles. Housing discrimination. Violence against men, women, and children. Whew. And the fact that the Bible writers endorse amenormativity. That, that's clear to me that the Bible is not cohesive. Um, the Bible writers endorsed human rights violations, civil and political rights violations, economic, social, and cultural rights violations in the Bible. The Bible writers um, hated equal opportunity, social equality, social justice, political liberation, and economic equality. Um, the Bible writers endorse wealth inequality and income inequality. The Bible writers hated wealth equality, income equality. The Bible writers endorse social inequality. The Bible writers hate egalitarianism. Um, the Bible writers hate equality under the law. The Bible writers endorse political oppression and social injustice. Mm. Then it says, there's also the problem of culture understanding. With an imperfect knowledge of ancient cultures, it is not always possible to understand references to understand references of various kinds. 
Bible scholars are continually learning things about ancient Israel and the Near East that can help us understand the historical and cultural context out of which the Bible emerged. For example, we understand much more clearly today the way the various social classes interacted in the ancient world as well as the more intimate workings of families, clans, and tribes in ancient Israel. Such discoveries sometimes affect how we understand the words and stories of the Bible. In addition, archaeologists continue to find documents and libraries that can help translators understand the ancient Hebrew and Greek languages better and still help them translate the Bible more accurately. For instance, the King James Version translates 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 22 like this. And David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran into the army. The translators had difficulty with one of the Hebrew words in the manuscripts. They used to translate his carriage and keep with the carriage based on the context of narrative. As translators learned more about the Hebrew language and its vocabulary, they understood that the verse did not talk about David's carriage, but about the carried things or baggage that he had with him for the soldiers in the army. And so the translators of the Revised Standard Version, published in 1952, were able to translate the same verse more accurately. And David left the things in the charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks, according to BibleLearning.org. At this point, we should mention that even if translators know the cultural setting of the biblical era, it is very hard for them to reconstruct this cultural setting in which the writing first took place since there are great differences between it and the current one. Wow. Um, that proves to me that there are parts of the Bible that are awful, disgusting, nasty, terrible, dreadful, ghastly, horrid, horrible, vile, foul, abominable, appalling, atrocious, horrendous, hideous, offensive, objectionable, obnoxious, frightful, loathsome, revolting, repulsive, repellent, repugnant, odious, sickening, nauseating, nauseous, noisome, disgustful, loathly, Poor, hopeless, inadequate, inferior, unsatisfactory, substandard, laughable, lamentable, execrable, egregious, very unpleasant, um, very bad. And extremely disagreeable. says what this means that we have an imperfect understanding of what God assuming quote unquote he dictated directly to the biblical authors is saying to us if God inspired the original scriptural authors why has quote unquote he not inspired the translators in the same manner if quote unquote he had there would be no controversies over scriptural texts as all translations would agree and would and would easily and successfully and appropriately and correctly convey the original meanings that God opted out of this critical process makes a lot of people think that there is strong evidence of quote unquote his non-existence um because I um I look at the scriptures and I and I must admit the scriptures tend to be mutually opposed and inconsistent 
Um, the scriptures tend to be opposed in opposition, opposite, antithetical, contrary, contrasting, conflicting, at variance, at odds, op- opposing, clashing, divergent, discrepant, different, inconsistent, incompatible, lacking chemistry, irreconcilable, incongruous, paradoxical, back ass words, repugnant, um, contradictory. and opposite day with each other in terms of verses, passages, characters, and stories. The Bible endorses physical violence and the Bible writers played the game of telephone and um, it makes me think Why do we have to guess with the Bible? Why do we have to estimate with the Bible? Why do we have to calculate with the Bible? Why do we have to approximate with the Bible? Why do we have to hypothesize with the Bible? Why do we have to postulate with the Bible? Why do we have to predict with the Bible? Why do we have to speculate with the Bible? Why do we have to conjecture with the Bible? Why do we have to surmise with the Bible? Why do we have to reckon with the Bible? Why do we have to fathom with the Bible? Why do we have to evaluate with the Bible? Why do we have to judge the Bible? Why do we have to gauge the Bible? Why do we have to determine the Bible? Why do we have to rate the Bible? Why do we have to praise the Bible? Why do we have to weigh up the Bible? Why do we have to make a guess at the Bible? Why do we have to make an estimate of the Bible? Why do we have to form an opinion of the Bible? If the Bible is allegedly and supposedly 100% perfect and 100% concise, also known as precise. And why do we have to correctly conjecture or perceive the Bible if the Bible is supposed to be totally divine? as an anthology that doesn't make any sense either the fact that the bible is pro-war even though the bible writers claim to serve the prince of peace jesus Contradictory concepts are scattered all over the Bible. In scripture, the Bible writers make God to be a puzzling enigma. Overly mysterious. Too many unanswered questions. Excessive, unfilled blanks when it comes to God is what the Bible writers did. 
It's like the Bible has these riddles and nursery rhymes throughout the scriptures. The fiction, some of the stories are fictional fairy tales. And honestly, I'm still looking for the scientific evidence that um, divine beings can be anthropomorphic. I'm also looking for scientific evidence that demonic beings can be anthropomorphic too. Um, The fact that God and angels are considered males in the Bible and they procreated with human women. But their descendants There's no evidence of them existing. Um, Because Jesus says, allegedly, that angels don't marry and don't reproduce. Then how... Then why was there an exception according to the book of Genesis regarding that? So in that culture, angels married humans reproduced with them but when the Old Testament apparently Jesus got disgusted by that but it, but because Jesus always God he wasn't disgusted by that in Genesis but in the book of Matthew the first book about him he is so many contradictory concepts throughout the Bible. I tell you, I say it again because that's a weird sense of anthropomorphism. Um, you would think you would have a bunch of superhuman beings roaming around, but that's not evidentially the case. The Bible endorses human rights abuses and civil rights abuses. Now I fully understand why it's easy to justify clerical abuse with the Bible. The fact that the Bible writers champion slavery. I see why it's so easy to use Jim Crow and segregation to say, well, the Bible's cool with my racism. Mm. Mm. I see why so many
people in church hate black Jesus. Even though they're not black themselves. In Romans chapter 13, it's not crystal clear on the relationship between Christianity and politics. According to the New International Version's commentary, Christians understand Romans chapter 13 in different ways. All Christians agree that we are to live at peace with the state as long as the state allows them to live by their religious convictions. For hundreds of years, however, there have been at least three interpretations of how we are to do this. One, some Christians believe that the state is so corrupt that Christians should have as little to do with it as possible, although they should be good citizens as long as they can do so without compromising their beliefs. They should not work for the government, vote in elections, serve in the military, or run for public office. Number two, others believe that God has given the state authority in certain areas and the church authority in others. Christians can be loyal to both and can work for either. They should not, however, confuse the two. In this view, church and state are concerned with two totally different spheres, S-P-H-E-R-E-S, the spiritual and the physical, and thus complement each other but do not work together. Number three, still others believe that Christians have responsibility to make the state better. They can do this politically by electing Christian or other high-profile leaders. They can also do this morally by serving as an influence for good in society. In this view, church and state ideally work together for the good of all. This is all confusing to me. This is all perplexing, bafflement, and bewilderment to me because... There should be no such things interpretations when we're talking about a collection of literature that's supposed to be 100% God and 100% flawless. <sighs> the, then the, the NIV commentators further to say, None of these views advocated rebelling against or refusing to obey the government's laws or regulations unless those laws clearly required Required them to violate the moral stance revealed by God according to how they interpret scripture. Wherever they find themselves, they must be responsible citizens as well as responsible Christians. Again, that is still using spiritual explanations. To escape complex psychological issues. The commentaries is just awful. Like, a lot of the conservative commentators and conservative versions of the Bible tend to uh, justify human cruelty animal cruelty and environmental injustice. Um, And a lot of the conservative commentators and conservative translators, conservative transliterators, conservative versions of the Bible are filled with um, 
with bullying those who do not practice conservative theology. If you read the commentaries and their rewritings of the Bible and their versions of the Bible, the bullying in terms of the words are violent, murderous, fearful, um, eternal hatred. That's what hell is for them. And temporary hatred. Hey, I'm going to um, make you feel subhuman through my being inhuman and inhumane to you, but I can spiritualize it, religionize it, churchify it, Christianize it, and make it feel like I'm truly baptized. Scripture and a lot of passages are a bunch of filthy pigsties. And I see that the Bible's not clear in terms of is it okay for Christians to have secular leadership positions? Or just strictly Christian leadership positions. Like the Bible is not clear on Christian homeschooling. Or put them in private public schools. Or maybe just parochial schools. There's no clarity. And there's no clarity on is it secular music or gospel music? Is it okay for Christians to listen to one, the other, or both? It's not clear. And should they attend secular events? The Bible is not clear on whether that's okay for Christians to do that or it should just be Christian events and you know why tell people to wait to be absent until you're married but most Christians have a history of fornication in their lives and why tell people don't masturbate most Christians know what it's like to masturbate in their lives and why tell people Don't watch porn, but most Christians have seen porn on multiple occasions. And why tell people, don't have wet dreams, don't have sex dreams. Most Christians have wet dreams and sex dreams. And why tell people to bounce your eyes and see an attractive person, but most Christians know what it's like to look at an attractive person for lengthy periods of time. I'm suffering from biblical exasperation, biblical irritation, and biblical aggravation. I'm... Also suffering from biblical frustration. The sex negativity of the Bible causes me 
biblical angst. And the fact that the Bible is not clear whether hell is temporary or eternal causes me biblical anguish. Apparently, the Bible condemns voluntary childlessness, also known as child freedom, also known as being child free. And the Bible condemns barren women and women who just don't have kids for all sorts of reasons. I don't understand why make bullshit biblical. Why make what's fucked up scriptural? The singleism in the Bible is a symptom of despotism. I say that because the Bible writers endorse tyranny, dictatorship, totalitarianism, authoritarianism, absolutism, oppression, repression, suppression, obsession, autocracy, monocracy, autocracy, absolute rule, and being Orwellian. The Bible rejects conscious parenting, gentle parenting, positive parenting, peaceful parenting, wise parenting, respectful parenting, and authoritative parenting. Woo! It's worse. The Bible's in favor of Christian nationalism, the theocratic version of Zionism, and theocracy. The Bible is in favor of Christian states state churches and theonomies. <sighs> the Bible is in favor of religious nationalism. to be Christian they're the far wrong (sighs) 
And when they say U.S. is meant to be a Christian nation and want to take back the U.S. for God, what they mean to say is we love the days when Harriet Tubman was in slavery and did not make 19 trips from the north and the south repeatedly to free over 300 black people in slavery. They liked the days when Frederick Douglass was in slavery and did not make an attempt to escape for at least the first 18 years of his living. They loved the days when you could put bounties on black people and have slave catchers and slave kidnappers take back people, take black people back to slavery. They loved the days we could put black folks on most wanted posters. and pay other black people to recapture black people already free and make them slaves again. They loved, they want the days back of being celebratory, seeing black people lynched, eating, drinking, laughing, and dancing and partying while it's happening and taking public photos with it with a lot of happy grins on their faces. They want to go back to the days where the whites had the best seats in the churches and the blacks had the worst seats in the churches. They wanted, they want segregated church lawfully speaking back. They, they want the days when Barack Obama was never president. They love Andrew Jackson and Andrew Johnson. Those two Andrews. (coughs) The racism made me just sneeze. Those two Andrews. Are symbols. Of patriarchal heterosexual, white, native-born status symbols of the Ku Klux Klan, the Nazis, and the White Citizens Council of Alabama. They were Trumpism before Donald Trump was conceived. The church has turned itself into the supermodel runway, the comedy club, the Oscars, the Emmys, 
the Tonys, the Grammys, Showtime at the Apollo. Ventriloquist dummies, talking parrots, impersonators, being imposters. And the church has become a safe environment. for violent offenders and the church has become a dangerous environment for victims of violent offenders. And the church is competing every year with everyone on the Forbes list on who can make the most money.